fourth, the second of the four Gospels, Mark, written by John Mark, we think, uh, from the, 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 the talks and the, the teachings of Peter, and he collated it into a staccato 16-chapter book, short, sharp, powerful, economy of words, and we left that for a while, for seven weeks, we looked at the conversation of who are we, and we explored what that meant as we regrouped post-COVID scattering. And uh, tonight we're going to go back and we're going to take some time and finish up with the book of Mark by the end of January. So grab your Bibles. If you don't have your Bible, you can look on your weapon of mass destruction or you can just listen up. It's Mark and it is chapter 9 and we'll pick up in verse 14. My title this evening is The Pivot Point. The Pivot Point. The Pivot Point. And we'll see why in just a moment. Mark chapter 9 and verses 14 through to 29. And when they, being Peter, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, remember they had been, Dana spoke powerfully about the transfiguration, and now they're coming down the mountain, and there is mayhem happening down below the mountain. And when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. Why would they be overawed with wonder? Isn't that an interesting little throw-in? I mean, who, who, they've been away for some time. They're not particularly bath. They're not particularly clean. He's not particularly a handsome. We know that uh, from Isaiah 53 that Jesus really had no looks about him. That people were like, whoa, he must be the Messiah. There was no sense of visual appeal. And yet they knew when they saw him that it was him. And remember, no... Instagram, no TikTok, no way to tell that it was him except that's him. What? What made them sure that was him? I'll pick up the reading. What are you arguing with them about, Jesus asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashing his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked his disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Are you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him, and when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus answered the boy, how uh, sorry, the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the father answered, it's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Now you can feel the impassioned plea of the boy's dad. I mean, you can feel it, can't you? If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And we just, when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. Jesus never drew attention to the demonic world. People who want to play with the demonic to kind of, oh, look at this, look at this. It's generally drawing attention to themselves rather than to the work of God. Any wise person dealing in the demonic and the supernatural uh, collision between darkness and light will do it behind the scenes or do it quietly or do it on the side never drawing attention to anything other than Jesus. And when Jesus saw the crowd was running 
to the scene. He rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer and some manuscripts write and fasting. So, so what's the point here? Okay, so there's a kid who convulses and foams at the mouth and, and uh, generally is impacted by the supernatural realm. Jesus comes down with his mates. They come down the hill. They find this crowd. Jesus is disgusted by the unbelieving nature of the moment. He calls the boy over. He delivers the boy. And then the disciples complain afterwards or say, well, why couldn't we do it? Is, is that it? Is that it? If it is, then we should go home. But if it isn't, then maybe there is something pretty strategic here. Now, let's go back to the Scriptures. Let's find out why is this story here. Well, the first thing that is obvious as we read our way through the text is that Jesus frames this event around three predictions that he's about to die. Chapter 8, go there with me if you don't mind. And then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he might be killed, must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Come on, Jay. This is no good, man. You're making people feel insecure. You're leaving us. What's going to happen to us? We've left everything to be with you. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, you merely, uh, but merely human concerns. So we see the front end is the sense of, I am leaving. What does he do straight after this? They left the place, uh, verse 30, and they passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were, blah, blah, blah. And he said to them a second time, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. He says to the disciples, verse 35, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Unless we forget it, he says it a third time, chapter 10, verse 32, It'll all make sense. Give me a moment. They're on the way up to Jerusalem when Jesus, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Why? The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles where he will, they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him, in other words, torture him, and three days later he will arise. Ladies and gentlemen, I think this story is in the Scripture as an example of those pivot moments in your life and mine when God is about to change the game. Jesus says, listen, I want you to understand this very carefully. I'm out of here. I want you to understand this. And the first time he does this, he, he indicates to Peter, and I want you to get behind me because you don't understand what is happening here. In these times when God is about to change the game, change the intensity, change the urgency in your life and mine, there are a series of things that begin to happen that I think this text indicates. Have you had that moment where you just don't know what's going on? It just isn't like it used to be. Ern Baxter tells the story many, many years ago. He was a great old-timer preacher. He took 45 minutes 
to explain what I'm explaining to you now in two minutes, but it's the great eagle story. And the story is of the mother eagle who builds this exquisite nest, takes time to weave the nest together, gathers soft kindling and feathers and anything she could find to create this beautifully soft, easy, pleasant, livable place into which she will plonk her nets, her, her eggs. And what a joy it is when that eaglet comes out and she nurtures it and feeds it and the dad and the mom take turns to get the worms and then the little rats and all the little bits and pieces that give this little weeny little eaglet thingy the joy of this is the most amazing life I have ever had in my whole life. And one day the mother eagle comes into land and she has this, a wry smile on her face because she knows something is about to change. And she plucks away a leaf, plucks away a feather, removes some kindling. And this little eaglet who has lived so comfortably and eaten so plentifully and enjoyed the bounty of being safe and sound in the nest of the mother and the father suddenly begins to feel uncomfortable. And he's not sure why, or she's not sure why. Why is my mother doing this to me? But then comes the day worst of all, where the mother comes between the cliff and the crevice where the nest is and she spreads herself as wide as she can and she starts to egg this little eaglet towards the edge. The eaglet looks down 3,000 feet. She looks up at the mother. What on earth are you trying to do? You're going to kill me. I know. I know I've been a bad little eaglet. You're about to push me over the edge. I'm about to die. I'm going to say my last words and I am a dead little eaglet. And eventually the mother pushes the little eaglet over the edge. And what does the eaglet do? It flaps its little weak, ill-trained, weak-muscled wings as much as it can in the pure quest for survival. And the mother lets the eaglet plummet. And then she swoops under the eaglet and it lands on the top of her cape, on her neck here. And she brings it back and plonks it down. And the eaglet is somewhere between furious and relieved. I'm alive. I'm alive. I am alive. What has just happened? A pivot point has just taken place. The very reason why that eaglet exists is to catch the wind, the torrents of change as it throws its way around the mountainside. As that eaglet soars with its, with its piercing gaze to find the food that it in turn will take to its young, it needs to be pushed over the edge. It needs to learn to flap with all of its might because the next day it happens again and the day after that and the mother doesn't feed the eaglet and the eaglet gets more and more hungry and flaps its wings more and more as it strengthens itself until one day lo and behold it is not the mother who comes underneath the eaglet to catch it on its neck but it is the eaglet itself that catches that wind as it swirls its way up the mountain and it flies and it realizes this is why I was born this is why I'm alive that ladies and gentlemen is calling that is calling. When you realize why you're flying. And the tragedy to me is many a Christian wants to stay in the nest of comfort and convenience where I manage my life, I control my time, I administrate my money, I do everything I can because I will not leave this nest of my self-control. I think this happens here. I think Jesus allows a circumstance where the disciples just 
have no knowledge of what to do. It feels like Jesus is missing in action. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. I'm glad you asked me. Exodus 32 and 33. Moses is up the mountain. He's not coming down. He's not coming down. There's this rumble up there. They think God's killed Moses. So they just say, Aaron, please just give us a God. Because we have to control this moment. I'm feeling so insecure. I'm feeling so anxious. I'm feeling so fearful. Please give me a God. And so they bring all the earrings and rings and toe rings and, and bracelets. And, and they melt it down and they create this calf. And Moses comes down as Jesus did. And Moses says as Jesus would do. Oh, you unbelieving generation. As he crashes those tablets onto the floor. But it is so interesting, when he goes back up to the mountain, he pleads to them. And he says, please don't send us if you don't go with us. God invariably feels missing in action when the stirrings of the nest happens in your life and mine. When it feels like things are just uncomfortable. I don't know why. I'm not particularly sinful. I'm not in God's. God doesn't seem to be angry with me. But God the eagle has lifted himself and elevated himself and begun to push me out of my nest and begin to push me to the edge of the precipice into which I will fall. And in panic, I hold on to any golden calf that I can, which tries to prevent me from doing the thing I'm supposed to do, which is fly. We were designed for journey. That's why we've called this series the New Exodus. Because it mirrors so much of the old Exodus. And if we really had a timeless opportunity to preach through the book, you would be amazed at how Exodus and Mark mirror each other. When God begins to create a pivot point in your life and mine, it invariably is when He's not there. It feels like he's missing in action. Where are you? My prayers are unanswered. Your presence is not tangible. The scriptures as dry as dust. Nothing seems to matter. So what do we do? We argue. That's what the disciples were doing with the crowd, with the Pharisees. They were arguing. And everyone's was shaking that. I'm sure some people just said, you know, I've wasted my time coming here. I thought I would see Jesus. And what do I see? The church arguing with each other. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm done with church. I am gone. And suddenly someone whispers, I think it's him. I think it's him. And someone with stronger eyesight gazes and sees four figures coming down the mountain slowly but surely, tired, hungry, yeah, I recognize Peter. Peter's the one with the big gait, the big chest, the big arms, six foot something, 200 and something pounds. I recognize him. If he's there, probably the J is with him as well. When God pivots in your life, doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound exactly as things begin to stir inside of you? And in that missing in action moment is not the moment to panic. It's not the moment to feel out of control and I'm going to create my alternative reality. The second thing I want to say that's so obvious in this passage is the crowd's hunger for Jesus. Thank you for singing those songs about being hungry. I don't think you knew 
the way I was going to take this passage. All the people saw Jesus. They were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Friedrich Buchner said this. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but bear with me. For what we need to know, of course, is not that God exists, not just that beyond the steely brightness of the stars there is a cosmic intelligence of some kind that keeps the whole show going, but there is a God right here in the thick of our day to draw lives who may not who may not be writing messages about himself and the stars, but one way or another is trying to get messages through our blindness as we move around here, knee-deep in the fragrant muck and misery and marvel of this world. It is not objective proof of God's existence we want. It is the experience of God's presence. That is the miracle we really after, and that is also, I think, the miracle we really get. Now, let me speak as a dad for just a moment. Saturday night of the fast, we were at, in, in Irvine, at uh, the Snyders. We started worshipping Tyler and Leah were, were kind of leading us. And it felt fine. It was, it was going, going fine. And I felt the Spirit of God just say, get people in, get them around. And not, I don't want to embarrass you, Leah, but I, didn't really, I don't really know her. But I was curious because I heard she had this big voice. But I would never say that to her, but now I can because I've heard it. <laughs> and Leah and Leah, Leah, Leah and Tyler were just in front of me. I was standing off center at the side here. And this young lady started singing, and the presence of God fell amongst us. I've not felt the presence of God like that for a long, long time. COVID, missing people, parking lot, kind of difficult to get super groovy with God in the parking lot, you know what I mean? It's kind of a little, a little something else. But as the presence of God fell, it became tangible. And I don't know whether I needed to cry or laugh. I didn't know whether I had to jump or kneel. Because when the presence of God comes, it's this overwhelming sense that I'm not sure how I am supposed to respond. These people ran with wonder. They were overwhelmed. They, 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 what, what is he doing? Oh, we want to be near him. It's not time for intellectual, cerebral process and persuasion. That's, there is time for that. But we want to be with him. That's what he says here, Buchner does. It's the objective is not proof of God's existence. For those of you who are legitimately asking that we want, it's the experience of God's presence. That is the miracle we are really after. And it's the miracle we really get. The crowd wanted to experience him. I think the crowd still wants to experience him. That's why surrogate moments are. You can stand in a, in a concert and it feels like something supernatural is happening and our hearts are drawn to it because it's the surrogate. But where the surrogate is, is the legitimate. And I've seen some of you at weddings I've seen some of you go crazy, and then before the Lord, the Most High, the transcendent God of the universe. <laughs> Are you scared of Him? Are you scared He's going to touch you? Are you scared you haven't had a few whiskeys, that's why you can't do it? Or is there actually a deep inner desire, oh God, I want to know you like that. I want to experience you just like that. I'm actually part of the crowd running towards you, but it scares the heck out of me. Thirdly, in pivotal points, God gets us to face our fears. 
Please don't fear these moments. Listen, he's leaving them. He's had three dudes with him up the hill. The other nine are down the hill. They're in the muck and the mire of what it feels like without Jesus. And it's absolutely petrifying. They felt, I'm sure, defeated. I'm sure the enemy laughed in their face as he diminishes them. What? What? Little boy. You can't even deliver a little boy. Look at him. He's falling in the fire, rolling around, foaming at the mouth, being thrown this way and that. And you think that doesn't happen? Just come to Africa. The enemy is more sophisticated here because that way we don't cast him out. One of my closest friends who's dead now tells a hilarious story which I cannot reproduce well. But he worked for an evangelist, a German evangelist called Reinhard Bonke. And Reinhard used to speak to a million people at a time. I mean, there were photographs of people as far as the eye could see, sweeping from left to right in places like Nairobi and the Sudan and, and whatever. And Mike tells the story. He said, we all had to wear suits. And he remembers the day he was super proud of himself because he just got a new suit. And he was uh, Afrikaans is pronking, uh, uh, strutting. He, he was strutting. And, and it was a little bit like, I've got my suit, I'm happening, got a big Bible, brand new one, leather, the gold on the side. He's happening. He's hosting the moment, so he is super proud of himself. And he goes through to the yard, to the tent, because it was all tent work, uh, where they are ministering to people. And one of the counselors is big-eyed like this, and, and he says to Mike, come and help, come and help. And Mike says, watch, and there's this little bitty girl lying there. And this counselor says, look, we, have, we, 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 we do not know what to do with them. Mike said, I got it. And he walked over with his big black Bible with the gold lettering and his brand new suit, sure that the devil was going to be totally intimidated by the suit and the big black Bible. And he said, as he laid his hands on this girl, she fell onto her face and started wiggling like a snake, tongue going out like this. Little girl. So what he did then is he called some other counselors because Jesus said, go out two by two. So he got four men to hold her hands and her feet and as he started praying for her again, she threw the men off her. A little nine-year-old girl. She threw four men off her. She screeched in the most demonically, dastardly fashion as these men were thrown off. Mike said, I, I, I said, <laughs> he said, I was praying over her. And he said, as she bounced up, she said, I still don't know how she bounced up because she threw the four men over and I got such a fright, he said, I fell backwards and split my pants. <laughs> my brand new suit with a black Bible with a gold thing. And he split his pants up and he had to go back to the hotel which was forever away. In fact, I think he wrapped a towel around him or something until the proceeding was open. Ladies and gentlemen, this is real and this exists. And so can you imagine the enemy gets them to face their fears of defeat, diminishing them, shrinking them down. Why? Because at a pivot point, the enemy wants us to face, let me say this, God wants us to face our highest level of challenge to date. Isn't that true? Something we've never had to face before. Our greatest feeling of inferiority. I shouldn't be doing this. I suck at this. I preach? Heck no. Do you see what the enemy just did? He kicked my butt. I've suffered with bulimia. I got it. And the enemy comes and he stirs the pot 
and he works and he wiggles and then there's an opportunity to pray for people, prophesy, minister, stand up, deliver a speech and the next minute you're over the toilet one more time. I got you. I got you. You're going to get up there because I've disqualified you. See, I know. And so what God does is he allows us to face our fears, to deal with that sense of inferiority. Oh God, how could anyone possibly listen to me? Tyler Stanton, who leads a great church in Brooklyn, tells the story of uh, he was on his way home. He was about to go and do his online preach. And as he was getting home through Brooklyn, this is now, 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 a couple of weeks ago, he saw... A young kid had been in his youth group many years ago. I can't remember his name now. But he hadn't managed to see him, find him for a long time. But this kid was now a heroin addict sleeping on the street. And he went across and he took him for a meal and he spoke to him and said, come home with me, come and stay in our home. We will help you, we will find. And nothing he said mattered as this kid fobbed him off, fobbed him off, fobbed him off. And he tried, he prayed, he rebuked the devil, he did whatever he could. And he said he got home and his wife, after a while, opened the door because he didn't unlock the door. And what did his wife say? Why didn't you come on inside? He said, I couldn't. How can I get up and stand and preach in front of my congregation if I cannot bring freedom to a young heroin, heroin addict? You with me? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something that happens to you as well? Fourthly, Jesus says, you unbelieving generation, how long will I, will I, shall I stay with you? How long will you, should I put up with you? You know, every generation is unbelieving. My generation, we were boomers. I think, therefore I am. We lived in the world of cerebral thought. We had, in South Africa, white privilege. I know it's very contentious here in America. I'm not an authority to speak on it. But I grew up with white privilege. The color of my skin empowered me to go to which schools, live in which suburbs, uh, go to which colleges, etc., uh, etc. Et we, certainly in South Africa, we legitimized racism. And we certainly had a highly hierarchical, patriarchal society and social contract. But your generation equally is unbelieving. Isn't it interesting that both Paul and Peter both address the issue of the corrupt generation? Because every generation has to face its own corruption. Or be true to yourself is part of the mantra of your generation. Not be true to God, be true to yourself because you are the moral value and the level of all things. Measure yourself by yourself. You do you, I do me. I feel, therefore I am. My feeling is my highest virtue. Express yourself, Freud said, without any sense of guilt. Craft your own morality. No one must tell you what is right or wrong, etc., etc. I don't want to dwell on that, but I want us to at least momentarily be reminded the clock's never our friend. But I want you at least to be reminded the culture that you bought into and owned is consistently against you and any sense of obedience to Christ. Please understand that. It's an unbelieving generation. As long as you bow to the cultural norms or the generational norms, you will lose your sense of faith and adventure. Faith is the art, C.S. Lewis said. 
of holding on to things your reason once accepted. Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason once accepted despite your changing mood. Remember when you first tithed? Well, some of you never tithed. But, but do you remember the first time you tithed? Remember the thought of 10%? I've just made 50 bucks, it's 5 bucks. Okay, okay, I can live with that. Then you make three grand. You think, ooh, 300 bucks. You know what I can do with 300 bucks? You know how many movies I can go to? The shoes I'm saving up that are 174.99 on special. Um, th then, you, then you earn eight grand, and then it's like $800. And, and you muster it, and you dig it, and you, you find faith for it. And, and, and it feels so good as you write that first check or send the first Venmo on go on genesiscoastamesa.com, and you give it, or dot .org, or dot .something. It feels good, doesn't it? And God says, well done. I am so stoked. That is amazing. Now, a little more. Another little adventure. Yeah, yes, I'd, I'd like you to empty your savings account. No, 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 hang on. <laughs> hang on. Hang on. Hang on. We, we agreed to the tie thing. You see, what each faith adventure does is it elevates our sense of trust in Almighty God. Every faith adventure will stretch your faith in some... I mean, I use finances just partly in humor and partly because it's relevant to all of us. But our faith muscle has to grow. But I want to take you up a notch. I want to take you up a notch. You prophesied? That's fabulous. Now I want you to speak in tongues and prophesy. You've shared with a few people, now I want to ready you to do that. You know, Meryl, I had a remarkable thing this weekend. Many years ago, um, 19, mid-80s, mid-80s, let's say 85, I met a young man who was single, had just graduated from college, and we became friends within a larger relational world. Never close friends, but within a larger relational world. And it was so fun to watch his story. When he left high school, he became a policeman, because in South Africa, we all had to either go to the army or the police. So he decided to go to the police because it was an easier gig, which it was. And he said he, he has the unique uh, history of never having arrested anyone. He was the worst cop ever. But he said one day he was sitting in uh, the offices at lunchtime. He said all the other senior police officers would sit and play cards and pull out their bottle of whiskey or their bottle of brandy, and they would have a couple of shots and then be ready for the afternoon. And he watched all of this as one who never wanted to study further, had no interest in further academics, just thought he'd kind of plod his life through, and he realized that's not what I want. And so he went off to college. His father couldn't afford it. And he had to go to college, raise his loans. And I met Derek when he just graduated. Keen, zealous, had come to faith, watching him stumble his early steps of his faith walk. And um, I watched him take his first job at Unilever, which is a Dutch conglomerate. And uh, then our paths drifted, as they tend to. He'd gone to England, went to do an MBA in, uh, in Bath, England, and uh, Coquette hunted him. All the while, all the while, this heart for Jesus and this heart to be generous just oozed out of him. As long as I've known him. Coquette hunted him. And to cut a very long story short, he, he worked with Coke Corporate for about, oh, for couple of decades, ended up heading Berlin, which is the 21, Coke has 21 
different regions around the world. And if you're on that 21, you are the senior executive for Coca-Cola for that reason, as he was for Coke in Europe. Who was he? He was the kid who didn't even want to go to college. Who was he? He was the kid who started taking the stumbling steps of being generous, tithing. Who was he? The guy who wanted Jesus more than anything else. Who was he? The guy who wanted a full-time call and wanted to minister and preach the Word of God. Who was he? A man who God took by the scruff of his neck and he walked him through the corporate ladder that he ended up being one of the 21 profiled uh, international men for Coca-Cola and became an extremely wealthy man who pours his money into the kingdom. Why? Because God could trust him. I watched him the first time he emptied his bank account and gave it all away. Him and Frank. God spoke to them. Empty the bank account and give it all away. And that's exactly what they did. We went this weekend to go and look at a farm he's looking to buy. And we walked the farm and we prayed. And the four of us were extremely tender together because we'd watched their journey of humility and generosity. See, you don't know where you will end up. And these little steps where you sit and you clutch your wallet to stay in the financial illustration, where you manage yourself and your ability to do accounts and spreadsheets is far greater than your ability to express faith. See, we have the privilege of now, let's say 40 years later, whatever it is, where we can sit and we can tell stories of God's sublime generosity when they were in Romania and they found a, a homeless man who had one fang, they said. And they had the big house in town because he was the Coke executive. And they brought this homeless guy in who couldn't speak English, who didn't know how to bath. In fact, had never had a bath. And Rosie, his wife, who is a nurse, took this old man who was homeless with one tooth and explained to him what she was going to do gave him a couple of towels and took all his clothes off and put him in a bath and scrubbed this homeless man and gave him his own bedroom with brand new sheets and fed him and looked after him. See, the little boy, young student who learned to say yes to Jesus with what it took then is the same guy who in Romania had a homeless man stay with him and there are many stories and you have to drag it out of them because of their humility. Is the same man now who has a dream of having a farm where people can come and get healed up and restored to life and ministry and can be catapulted again out into God's global adventure. What will your story be? When I'm long gone, when I'm singing with the angels, and you meet somewhere in Florence and you have your delightful little Italian cafe together. You say, can I tell you how good God... Remember when we were in the parking lot and we were all struggling to stay with the money? It's not the thing. You know three years we haven't taken an offering, so you know we're pretty cool about it. But remember how difficult it was to empty that first $400 in the bank account? Remember? Well, I've just written a $4 million check. But pivot points take us one step at a time. One step at a time. One step at a time. When the eagle comes, throws his great, majestic, magnificent wings, and he starts edging you and I towards the precipice, 
As we career down, we realize it's why we are here. We are meant to fly. Lastly, thank you for being so attentive tonight. I don't know how you all sit in your booties. I said to Meryl today, I have no idea how you do it. Lastly, there is a remarkable authority that comes through prayer and fasting. And I want to just land with fasting, if I may. You know, fasting is a very curious thing, as is most things spiritual. They don't always make logical, reasonable sense. I mean, if you think about it, we go without food. Or the last one we just had, soup and fruit juice. I mean, you could do the super cool veggie, beanie, spicy, soupy thing. And then you have this cool mother's juice where they've just liquidized anything and everything and it's healthy and it's vibrant and I'm feeling good. Really? Does this make any difference whatsoever? They greet me every morning, by the way. They come flying over my house at about 20 to 7. I hear them. And you think it'll make any difference whatsoever. Do you remember the Esther story? Do you remember Esther? Isn't it interesting, for those of you who don't know, it's a little story that messes the Bible for us. Because here is the, the remnant of the Jews in exile near Cusa, I believe it is, where, which was the center of the Persian Empire. Vashti, the king's wife, freaks him out. He's an alcoholic. He drinks too much. He parties too much. And one day in one of his drunken stupors, he says to his wife, who was gorgeous by all appearances, to come and present herself. He wanted to show her off. And she says, buddy, suck eggs. I'm not coming out under any circumstances whatsoever. Now he's embarrassed. What does he do? He's tanked up. He's shickered up. What does he do? He says, all right, that's it. You're not my wife anymore. I want you all to find the most attractive. I mean, look at the big guy I am. Find me the most beautiful young maidens, virgins, and bring them to me. Esther is there amongst them, except she's a Jew, and she can't tell him because it would lead to her death. It's the only book in the Bible that never mentions God. It's the only book in the Bible that never mentions prayer. It never mentions any of the normal spiritual things except this. Esther pleads to Mordecai, her uncle, get the Jews to fast. Now, ladies and gentlemen, why? Why is there a power in fasting? I do not know other than what it does do. It gives us a spiritual authority. I don't know why. I, I don't have a trick. I, I just know it does. We see it with Esther. We see it with other examples in the Scripture. But I land with a few short stories um, in this regard. I'm a storyteller, so you have to listen to my stories. Hudson Taylor, who was the pioneer missionary in China, writes, In Shanxi, which is a town in China, I found Chinese Christians who were accustomed to spending time in fasting and prayer. They recognized that this fasting, which so many dislike, which requires faith in God since it makes one feel weak and poorly, is really a divinely appointed means of grace. God gives us grace when we fast because the greatest hindrance to our work is our own imagined strength. We think we're stronger than we are. And in fasting, we learn what poor, weak creatures we really are. We're dependent on a meal of meat because that meat will give us a little strength that we can act upon and lean upon. The year was 1756. John Wesley was in England. France was about to invade England. And the King of England called a national day of fasting. 
I read, John Wesley tells in his journal of a deliverance in 1756, the King of England, mind you, called for a day of solemn prayer and fasting because of a threatened invasion by France. Wesley wrote, the fast was a glorious day such as London has scarce seen since the restoration. Every church in the city was more full and the solemn seriousness sat on every face. Surely God heareth prayer, he wrote, and there will yet be a lengthening of our tranquility, our peace. He added later as a footnote, humility was turned into national rejoicing for the threatened invasion by the French was averted, 1756. 1863, anyone know how, what happened in 1863? Exactly, the American Civil War. Do you know what the President of the United States decreed? It was not vote Democrat, it was not vote Republican, it was not be angry, bitter, divisive, it was not spitting out every form of divisiveness. This is what the President of the United States decreed. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and the just government of Almighty God in the affairs of men and of nations, has by resolution requested the President to designate and set apart today for national prayer and humiliation. Whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgression, in humble sorrow the President of the United States to confess their sins and their transgressions in humble sorrow, yet <coughs> with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. <coughs> it is a remarkable read. And I'm landing there because we are at the end, or at the, 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 the end of a presidential period. Four years is almost up. It is a pivot moment, not just personally for me, or for me and my family, but for us as a nation. I would, to God, that the leaders of the church in this nation would arise together and call the people to prayer. I cannot tell you how my heart breaks that it's not to prayer that we're being called, but to arms. It is not to peace, but to division. It is not to unity, but to military. I would to God, we, the church, embrace the wonder and the power of fasting. Jesus said this kind, this kind of demonic activity, which it is, by the way, whether you look left or look right, it is demonic activity in its extremes, is only overcome, Jesus said, through prayer and fasting. Now this is what I, where I land. Number one, I want to ask you as I ask myself, is this a pivot point for you in your life? Is this a moment where the eagle, the great, um, what's the biggest eagle? Okay, the biggest eagle, think of the biggest <laughs> eagle, is standing cliffside of your life, the known, the predictable, the manageable, the controlled, is standing there, rises full wing, full stretch, and starts hovering over you with the look upon his face that knows there is something, a move, a foot for you that is not humanly possible. That God himself is activating and mobilizing you 
to something else. But it will require him pushing you over the edge to feeling out of control, disorientated, even dysfunctioning. As he comes and swoops underneath you to pick you up to fly again. Why? To his glory for sure. But I realize as we sat together, Derek, Rosie, Merrill and I, over a delightful meal on Friday night, and then Saturday as we looked at this particular farm, and we just spoke with great tenderness, remember when we were. What will your story be? How many times you've run away from him? And this isn't meant to be manipulative. Please hear me, it's my heart's cry. How many times you said no? How many times you held on? How many times you kept yourself away? You prevented God from doing with you what He wants to do with you? Or will you sit with your spouse, except of course Caleb and Sam, because we know that they will still be married, and your friends and say, man, you won't believe what God has done with us. If any of this is relevant to you, will you pray with me? When I was preparing this week, I spent half of the time preparing the wrong passage. So I had to get hold of Tyler and I had to start all over again. And then I thought to myself, what on earth do I do with a story about a boy who's demonized? We've all heard it. If you've been around the church for any period of time, we've all heard it. And then the Spirit of God said to me, Chris, it's the pivot point. Don't miss the point. He was reading his disciples for when he was gone. And they had to stand up and deal with it. Father, I thank you for this remarkable group of men and women. I thank you for their stories. I thank you for many of them. It's the early days of an adventure of faith. For some of us, we're midway through. I've still got 20 some more years of counting for Jesus, whom I love so deeply. Not managing my life in mediocrity, but abandoning myself into impossibility. Thank you. Thank you for pushing so many over the edge over these days. Thank you for the anxiety we have felt and the sense of being out of control and, and, and not sure what to do next. Thank you that you come underneath us and pick us up again. It could be a moment of worship where you swoop under us or the hug of a friend or the text from a stranger that just God is underneath me again. Thank you for the relationships that we'll meet in 20 years' time, 30 years' time. So, wow, wow, I never thought that would happen with me. <coughs> I never thought God would do that. Bless these precious, precious sons and daughters of yours. Can I ask you, sorry, I'm suddenly coughing, my love. <coughs> Thanks. Take a moment. We're done. Before we scatter and enjoy our food, I just cooked a great steak, so I'm ready to eat. Take a moment and say, Lord, what are you saying to me tonight? Chris said many things.
But what are you saying to me? And then if there is someone next to you that you know or someone you are comfortable with, would you tell them? You know, this is actually what God said to me tonight. It's a little bit difficult to hear or it was amazingly confirming. Let's use the moment before we all scatter.